Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood, and I'm delighted today that Comfort Hero, Crisis Group's president and CEO, is joining me again as co-host. Comfort, welcome back on. Thank you very much, Richard. Glad to be back on the podcast. Today, we're going to talk again about the crisis in Ukraine. Does the latest flare-up on the front lines in Ukraine's eastern Donbass region mean that Russia's about to escalate? And can the intense diplomacy underway by Western leaders stop that happening? Do we want war? Of course we don't. That is exactly why we put forward proposals to open negotiations. If Russia does invade in the days and weeks ahead, the human cost for Ukraine will be immense. And the strategic cost for Russia will also be immense. Russia now has some 150,000 troops near the Ukrainian border including some on military exercises in Belarus, not so far from the Ukrainian capital, Kiev. As we just heard, Russian President Putin says Russia has no intention of invading. In Ukraine too, people tend to play down the danger. Ukrainian President Zelensky has said that his country has been at war since 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea and backed separatists who seized then and continue to hold breakout regions in Ukraine's eastern Donbass region. But as anyone who's been following the news over the past few weeks will know, Western leaders, including US President Joe Biden, who we just heard, have warned that Russia could attack any day. Ahead of Emmanuel Macron's meeting with Vladimir Putin in Moscow, the French president underscored the importance of dialogue. He said that Russia had no desire to invade Ukraine. He went on to say that Russia's real objective was to clarify the rules governing its coexistence with NATO and the European Union. The diplomatic options are far from exhausted. The task now must be to work resolutely and courageously towards a peaceful resolution of this crisis. The past few weeks have seen concerted diplomatic efforts by Western leaders to avert a Russian escalation. Biden has met with Putin several times. French President Emmanuel Macron went to Moscow also to meet with Putin. 
The new German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, has also shared a very large table in Moscow with Putin. He went to Kiev as well over the past few days. We just heard Scholz's statement from Moscow. And in the last hours, Russia's defense ministry said some of its troops were returning to their bases after completing military drills near Ukraine's border. The Russian defense minister reported today that some military units are leaving their positions near Ukraine. That would be good, but we have not yet verified that. We have not yet verified the Russian military units are returning to their home bases. Indeed, our analysts indicate that they remain very much in a threatening position. As we record this, reports on Russian military activity on the border are mixed. Some suggest Moscow's withdrawn some equipment, but NATO leaders continue to warn that other Russian units and equipment are arriving and an escalation could be imminent. There's also been a flare-up of shelling over the past few days on the front lines in Donbass. Biden himself has warned of a high and immediate risk of war. His Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, says that Russia appears to be setting the stage for an attack. So is there anything more Western leaders can do to deter Russia? And if Russia does escalate, how should they respond? To talk about all this, we're joined by Olya Olika, Crisis Group's Europe Central Asia Director. Olya has been working on Russian foreign policy, the Ukraine crisis and European security more broadly for years. Many of you will have heard our talking to an array of media outlets over the past few weeks. Olya, welcome back on. Happy to be back. So, Olya, could we start with a quick update on what's happening near the Ukraine border and on the front lines in Donbass that separate areas controlled by the Ukrainian government from those held by Russian-backed separatists? First, what, what should we make of these, these conflicting reports about the Russian troop movements? And what's the story with this latest uptick in shelling over the past couple of days on the front lines? So what you can clearly see, uh, if you look at satellite imagery, uh, so you don't just have to trust what various intelligence agencies tell you, you can look at open source accounts. So you see that forces are moving around. You can also see video coming from the Russian government, which also shows uh, stuff moving around, things getting loaded up. The question is, where is it going? And uh, the answer is that it looks like, if anything, it's gotten closer to the Ukrainian border rather than further away. What the Russian government has actually said is that some of the exercises that um, they say were underway are now completed, so forces are withdrawing or will be withdrawing. But the problem is that there's also a lot of evidence that other forces are arriving. And whether it's simply that the machinery was in place and you can't turn it off, or if it's subterfuge, hard to know. But for now, there's not a lot of evidence that anything has really been pulled back. Uh, And yeah, in the meantime, what we've had over the last couple of days, uh, starting largely on Thursday morning, is a big uptick in shelling, as you said. So the front line, uh, the line of contact between the Russian-backed separatist forces and Ukrainian government forces in Donbass had actually been pretty quiet for a while, and it is no longer quiet. And what you had initially was these accusations from the Russian-backed forces that the Ukrainian government uh, forces had been shelling except that they hadn't. And all the shelling was, in fact, hitting locations on the government-controlled side. And indeed, on uh, Thursday, they had a a preschool. No children were injured, two adults were injured. And then, um, as of Friday morning, there was basically evidence there was shelling up all all along the front line 
and Ukrainian forces had started shooting back at least some of the time, it looked like. And one of the things that uh, Western intelligence agencies, Western officials have been pretty consistent about throughout the crisis is this danger that a flare-up like this could be a pretext for Moscow to, to, to make a move. So, I mean, in that light, how dangerous should we see what's happening at the moment? So I think what people are thinking of is uh, the Georgia War in 2008, where the Georgian forces, as an EU investigation determined, had in fact shot first, but there was a real effort underway before that to provoke them, to try to get them to shoot. Uh, so I think... The speculation is that, yes, that's what's going on, is it's an effort to get the Ukrainian uh, government forces to do something uh, substantial and thus create a pretext for an open Russian military engagement, uh, ostensibly to protect people in Donbass. Thus far, there is no evidence that if this is bait, that the Ukrainians are rising to it. And for people that sort of haven't been following closely, what what does Moscow and what does President Putin actually say about what the Russian troops are doing? So up until quite recently, uh, the messaging from Moscow was there's absolutely nothing going on here. Yes, some exercises uh, with Belarus. Yes, some missile exercises in the Black Sea. But otherwise, what build up? There is nothing going on. This is all Western hysteria. Uh, what we got um, more recently is talk that a broader program of exercises, which are now ending. So, you know, I guess the message now is this was all exercises. Uh, maybe up to 150,000 troops were all uh, involved, are all continuing to be involved in some form of exercises, which are drawing to a close. And once they're over, the forces will be withdrawn. So that's the new message. But the notion, you know, and all of this, of course, um, is on Russian and Belarusian uh, territory. Nothing to worry about, you know, nothing to see here. And so Moscow has been now saying that exercises are winding up at some point soon. Well, uh, D- Defense Minister Shoigu is the one who was actually making that uh, that statement. Um, but yeah, that's that's the new messaging is that the exercises have completed or are going to com- are going to end soon, right? The ones with Belarus are actually due to end on the twentieth of February, and forces will withdraw once the exercises are over. Now, you know, the other thing to keep in mind here is this buildup has taken many months to put all of these forces in place. So even if uh, Moscow is planning to withdraw. Everybody, they're not going to poof disappear in a matter of minutes. It is going to take um, a long time, and it's always going to be reversible, even if it goes forward. Olya, can we take a step back? You know, when Western countries expressed concern about the buildup at the end of last year, Russia responded with its own demands, first on European security, written demands in the form of two treaties. What did these two treaties um, say? So what what Russia did was it put forward two draft treaties, one to be signed by Russia and all of the NATO member states and one to be signed by Russia and the United States. And the idea behind them is a series of things Russia would like to see. They are a commitment to no more NATO um, expansion to the east, so no new eastern members for the alliance. They are a commitment to pull NATO forces back to pretty much the force posture of 1997 before the waves of enlargement that began after that, to establish a moratorium on the deployment of intermediate-range missiles in Europe. So the uh, Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, which died uh, recently, um, 
banned all, all intermediate range uh, missiles. So this would basically be a commitment by Russia and the United States not to station such missiles in Europe and to the deployment of American nuclear weapons in Europe. So this wish list of things that actually have been on Russia's agenda for a long time, many of them, but what Russia wanted was to put them into treaties, uh, what Russia was proposing was to put them into treaties that everybody would sign and describing this as uh, written security guarantees for Russia, that the, in this way, NATO member states uh, altogether and the United States as the United States would be guaranteeing Russia's security. We'll talk in a moment about how Western countries have responded to those demands. But Russia also had demands related to the conflict in the Donbass, um, which are long-standing. Can we also run through those demands and how they sit alongside the two treaty demands that you just outlined as well? Right. So when um, the war began in 2014, when the fighting got really bad in 2014 and again in 2015, two agreements were signed uh, to arrange ceasefires, uh, collectively known as the Minsk Agreements, Minsk I and Minsk II. Those were signed when Ukrainian forces were under a tremendous amount of pressure. So they, to a large extent, were dictated by Russia. And among the things that they require of Ukraine is that Ukraine grant uh, special status to the separatist-held regions and that Ukraine hold elections in those regions prior to the withdrawal of military forces and U- Ukraine regaining control of its border, which of course would cement the people now in power there in power and perpetuity. So it, the deals also call for the withdrawal of military forces, Ukraine regaining control of its borders, all of these things, but the status and the elections are not something Ukraine has been willing to implement. On the other hand, the deals also call for lasting ceasefires, which neither side has been able to implement, and the withdrawal of heavy weaponry, which again, uh, the Ukrainians say they'll do as soon as Russia and the separatists' backs do it. Um, But Russia's sticking points are that they want Ukraine to grant this special status, which in its interpretation is um, a tremendous amount of autonomy, uh, where these de facto authorities fundamentally retain control, uh, retain their own militias, continue to run these territories and hold the elections to kind of cement that in place and put into Ukrainian parliament and Ukrainian governance structures these voices which Russia expects to continue to be loyal to Moscow. Which in effect would sort of give those voices and therefore Moscow a veto over key aspects of Ukrainian foreign and security policy. And domestic policy and all sorts of things. Yeah, that's the vision. That's not stated as such in the Minsk agreements, right? This is a matter of interpretation, but Moscow has made it very, very clear that that is its interpretation. And part of it is that precisely what special status means isn't clear in the Minsk agreements. It just says special status. And there's been some talk over the past few days at what I think the lower house of Russia's Duma's parliament actually voted to recognize the breakaway regions, separatist held areas. Do you get the sense that President Putin is likely to do that? And presumably that would be the death of, of Minsk by any interpretation. Well, they voted to ask Putin, you know, to consider uh, recognition. And the messaging from Moscow at this point is that that is out of line with Minsk and Russia supports the implementation of Minsk and therefore 
you know, that's that's not something they're planning to do. Um, it's an interesting notion, right? It's certainly not what the separatists want. The separatists would like to be annexed by Russia. It's not what the people of uh, the regions want. They would like peace and they would like prosperity and uh, de facto regimes that have been recognized by Moscow in the past have not exactly experienced uh, economic flowering uh, since that time. It might be what Kiev wouldn't mind, uh, because at least some people in Kiev, because it removes the problem of having to reintegrate these territories or implement their own components of Minsk, right? It just sort of takes that problem away. It would certainly create more problems for Moscow. And then you get into these questions of, if you recognize them, do you recognize their claims over territories they don't control? And is that a pretext for for more war? Uh, but it does sound as though, for now at least, uh, the Kremlin is not interested in opening that particular can of worms. Olya, thanks. Can we zoom in, um, looking at it from the Ukrainian um, perspective, the people of Kiev, for example, even on the front lines in Donbass, um, seem to paint quite a different picture of prospects for a Russian invasion. Zelensky himself sometimes has criticised the stark warnings from Western capitals about Russia's military action. Why the different take? So what you're seeing in Ukraine is two things going on simultaneously, right? One is a certain amount of business as usual. Uh, we've been at war for eight years, or at least, you know, those of us in the East have, uh, and those of us in the armed forces, people in Kiev, you know, have actually continued to live a fairly normal life. And on the other, there is some preparation, right? People have figured out where their nearest bomb shelter is. There's a lot of self-defense classes uh, going on. You know, their mayors have gotten authority to carry out defensive drills. Things like that are going on. But uh, what uh, President Zelensky has been concerned about is that by talking about imminent war, imminent war, imminent war, it's hurting Ukraine's economy. Investors are pulling back. None of this helps in the meantime, whatever comes next. And I think part of the issue is he doesn't want a population that's panicked. He wants a population that's prepared. And Zelensky, I think, what, Wednesday this week, he proclaimed, held a, a national day, a day of national unity. How has the crisis impacted his popularity? I think, again, I think for now, he's actually looking reasonably good. Um, again, it depends on what happens next. But if there is not an escalation, he does come out of this stronger, I think. Uh, if there is an escalation, there aren't a lot of ways to look good uh, going forward, right? Uh, his job is going to be to hold the country together, mount a defense, and then decide what to do next. But it's, you know, the likelihood of the Ukrainian armed forces, you know, they, they'll bloody the Russians if the Russians mount an attack, uh, pretty much any kind of attack you can imagine, but they're not going to win. So, you know, he's going to be in a very difficult place. And so, I mean, as we heard up top, what about 150,000 troops now uh, somewhere near the Ukrainian border, you know, all sorts of equipment, long range, short range, air capabilities, capabilities from the sea. Obviously, a lot of speculation about what a Russian escalation could entail. But what are some of the different scenarios? Right. There are everything from a little land grab in the east to improved positions for the separatist Russia backs. 
up to full-scale march on Kiev occupation, replace the government. And the challenge here, we've spoken about this on this podcast before, is if Russia's goal is fundamentally coercive, right, that they want a more pliable Kiev, uh, they want a regime change. The question is, what do they think it takes to get that? Uh, if we look at how Russia has used military force in the past, what it tends to do is try to use the minimum necessary. Uh, it may overestimate the minimum necessary, right? So the question is, what do they think they need to do to attain their goals? And from a coercive standpoint, giving themselves an awful lot of options, effectively having Ukraine surrounded, isn't a bad move. Uh, but what they actually do with it, I don't know. Well, could I just push again a little bit on this sort of idea about what Russia might get itself into if it does send troops in? I mean, presumably, as you say, Ukrainian security forces, as we talked about before on the podcast, Ukrainian security forces aren't going to be a match for the Russians, particularly once the Russians are using sort of air power, everything else they have. But you know, an occupation would still be enormously expensive and difficult for Russia. So presumably that's something that does weigh on Russian leaders' minds, or is it something that they underestimate still? You would think so, right? Uh, the experience in 2014 and 2015 uh, made it very clear that Ukraine as a whole is not a cakewalk, right? But uh, I think the tendency in Moscow to underestimate uh, Ukrainian resistance is a substantial and uh, sticky one. Uh, so I think at least some of the logic that would underlie any military action would be that Ukraine's military isn't that capable and the Ukrainian people are fundamentally friendly. Now, I'm pretty sure neither of those things is true, but I am not advising the Kremlin. So let's come in a moment to what Western leaders have been doing, what more they could do to deter uh, an escalation. But could we talk first about, let's say there is some form of of uh, Russian escalation, whether it's in the Donbass, whether it's something bigger than that. What options do Western leaders have if that happens in terms of their response? So they have said they've been very clear about what they will do if there is an escalation, and that includes uh, some pretty intense economic sanctions packages, uh, as well as even more of the military buildup in NATO member states uh, near to Russia that we have already seen, uh, beginning with just troops moving around in Europe and some new troops being sent to Europe. This is not about fighting a war in Ukraine. This is about reassuring allies, but it also is something that Russia very much doesn't like. Recall that what Russia is asking for is for the NATO force posture to move back to what it was in 1997 with pretty much nothing uh, near Russia's borders. What we would be seeing instead is the opposite of that, a real buildup near Russia's borders. Um, none of this saves Ukraine. Um, they have, uh, NATO member states have been, uh, have increased their supplies, uh, both lethal weaponry and defensive uh, equipment to Ukraine. Uh, this material, you know, this material, the support may make it, uh, will almost certainly make it possible both to kill more Russians and to save more Ukrainians. It won't, you know, in the end change the overall correlation of forces, but, you know, it, it will make it uh, possible to inflict more damage. If they can, they'll probably do more of that. But if they can't supply by sea or air, then it's kind of what they can move in over ground through the West. So I think that capacity is going to be limited. 
And what's your sense that if, I mean, there was the, the sort of uh, widely interpreted as a, as a gaffe that, uh, that President Biden made some weeks ago when he implied that, you know, if, oh, if it's something small in the East, we're not going to do the same as if it's a full-on Russian invasion. But presumably, whatever it is, there's going to be pretty strong appetite in Western capitals to, to, to roll out the full bunch of measures, you know, the, the, the support you talked about, the much heavier sanctions, the troop deployments along NATO's eastern flank. There's going to be pretty strong appetite in Western capitals to roll all that out, whatever Russia does. I think that's right. Uh, And I think for a number of reasons, including just the need to make very clear that NATO does mean what it says, that NATO is united, and that the EU, uh, you know, a lot of overlap between NATO and the EU, but it's not complete overlap. But the EU member states also stand stand together on this, that there's no daylight between them, and that this is not acceptable to them. Maybe it's not so unacceptable to them that they're willing to fight, but it is sufficiently unacceptable to them that they are willing to take substantial risks to their economies and honestly to the future of European security because a huge military buildup does increase the risk that the next crisis will be even worse. And I will say the next crisis will be even worse because if deterrence fails, if this combination of deterrence and a promise of talks and negotiations to make Europe more secure fails and Europe becomes less secure, the next crisis stands a much higher risk of actually seeing NATO military involvement. Olya, now let's look at the response from the Western capital, specifically um, Biden's meetings and calls um, with Putin that we've seen, with Macron, you know, going to Moscow. The latest now is the Chancellor of Germany, Schultz, just now this week in Moscow as well. Can you unpack for us the different conversations and how they all tie up into sort of a a coherent strategy by the West as well? So there have been different conversations. Do they equal coherence, clarity, um, unity? I think we've seen a tremendous amount of unity and also a tremendous amount of coordination. They are clearly talking to each other. We see them talking to each other. Um, They, you know, everybody who walks into a room and sits at a very, 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 very long table with Vladimir Putin is armed with the thoughts and uh, views of their allies. And they're very clear uh, on being aligned and sending the same message. I'll also say, you know, when kind of some of the stuff we've seen in the media, some of these discussions of disunity, Look, when your examples of disunity focus on the different stuff people are sending to Ukraine, and we've agreed that none of it is actually going to make it possible for Ukraine to win a war, so what you're fighting over is who sends what, and pointing to that as an example of disunity, I think you're grasping at straws to find disunity, honestly. So from my perspective, at least, uh, I think we have seen a tremendously united uh, NATO and EU and generally kind of Western position on all of this. Olya, can I just press you a little bit on that? So I mean, I agree with you that overall we've seen, you know, Western unity and we all agree that it's, it's vital. But there is one country that this is all very challenging for, and it's Germany. And it's, you know, it's very early into his tenure 
um, Chancellor Schultz really does see that this is a, a challenging issue for him to, to grapple with. There are a number of issues. Um, I leave aside the whole issue around Nord Stream, the heavy reliance on, on Russian gas as well. But how do you see this playing out for Germany and for the Germans? So Germany is not the only European country that buys a lot of Russian gas. And I think Germany has played a role historically as a bit of a Russia whisperer, right, as the European country that has a strong enough relationship with Moscow that sometimes it can get things done. And Germany also is very committed to not doing things like supplying weapons to other countries because of its own history with war in Europe. Uh, And I think that's understandable. And again, you know, you start quibbling over who supplies what. I don't know that that's uh, really reflective of huge divides. From what we've seen of the German government, they are completely aligned with the positions of their allies. And the message they're sending to Moscow is aligned with them. And it also does seem uh, that they've been very clear that if there's further escalation, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is not getting turned on. So, There was a lot of frustration, I think, previously with Germany not being muscular enough when it comes to Russia. But I don't see the Germans as um, being out of line. And I do think that their role as an important trade partner to Russia and as a country that has consistently been able to talk to Russia is important in moving negotiations forward, both because they demonstrate their alignment with their allies and because the Russians listen to them. And Oli, as you say, there's been this this sense of, of unity of purpose among Western leaders, you know, a lot of different leaders talking to Putin, largely singing from the same sheet. Now, President Putin is not going to get what he wants in terms of his draft treaties. He's not going to get what he wants in terms of the Russian interpretation of Minsk. Seems very unlikely. But there are some things that Western leaders have said that they could consider. I mean, how much space is there to give Moscow something or enough for it to pull its troops back and and sort of wait for another opportunity or rethink uh, an escalation? So I think the Russians are going to hold out to see how much they can get. And then they're going to decide whether they'd like to use force in the hopes that they can get even more, either from Ukraine or from Europe as a whole. Uh, In general, just the recognition that Russia has real security interests and concerns, even if other countries don't agree that they're valid, but the willingness to talk about them is something that Russian officials, uh, certainly from the foreign ministry, have pointed to as progress. Russia has this tremendous advantage that by having said all along there is nothing to see here, there is not a massive loss of face in not invading, right? Russia has not threatened an invasion, so it does not visibly back off from any of its points if it does not then carry one out. And honestly, it is for the good of European security if this results in real talks about what needs to be limited, what needs to be constrained, how we can all get along a little better. And wow, would it be nice if we could get a real reboot of peace talks in Ukraine that could lead to fewer Ukrainians dying. So, you know, there is the potential for this crisis to have a silver lining for Russia and for everybody else. Uh, Whether this is the view from the Kremlin or not, I can't say. And I mean, let's talk in a moment about what talks about a broader European security architecture might look like. But presumably, it's also enormously expensive for Moscow to have, what, 150,000 troops parked up in the country's uh, western corner. 
all deployed and all expecting, presumably at some point, to do something. I mean, this can't be can't be cheap, both in financial terms, but also to some degree politically at home for Putin. Does he have an unlimited amount of time that he can just sort of keep pushing for more? I don't think he has an unlimited amount of time. Um, on the other hand, if you think keeping a whole lot of troops near Ukraine's borders is expensive, think about what it would cost to occupy big chunks of Ukraine that would also be expensive, both in terms of uh, finances and in terms of Russian lives. So I think um, I don't think this can drag out forever. I do think it can drag out for a while longer. So we'll have to watch and see what exactly happens. If they go in, if they escalate, I think it will be under the assumption that they can carry out a successful military operation to attain their goals quickly. Again, uh, I would expect them to find that they're wrong. But, you know, I think that that would be the logic driving it. So again, you know, that, that might also be a factor if they decide that they're running out of time, they need to do something. If they think that a military operation will be successful, then that might be something they try. Uh, I suspect that one of the messages being carried by Western leaders in all of these conversations is, you know, aside from the sanctions, aside from the buildup, Ukraine isn't as easy as you might think it is. Olya, let's say that Russia does find a reason to pull back. Talks on European um, security, they still do remain important. What might the contours of a new European security look like, given you know, everything else that, that you've said so far? So some of this can come out of the Russian proposals. Uh, the moratorium on intermediate range forces deployed in Europe, uh, I think, should be acceptable to everybody. I think other conversations about who can deploy what, where, and inspections to make sure that countries are not deploying things they shouldn't be. Uh, this is also um, very much on the table and very feasible and has been has been discussed before. Updating existing agreements like the Vienna document uh, so that they are in line with current needs. The Vienna document is about notifications of exercises, but it only covers ground exercises. So getting something in place that also covers uh, air and sea-based activities um, would be very valuable. You could talk about unilateral actions not to, for instance, on the part of Western states, spend quite as much time challenging Russia's claims to Crimea with uh, freedom of navigation exercises in the Black Sea, uh, which have led to incidents over the last few years. So there's a whole package of activities. And also we've talked about limitations on what you can station, not just on the territory of your own country and your allies, but on the territories of countries you are not aligned with. Uh, so, you know, all of these things are open to discussion. And I don't think, you know, it could be resolved in two treaties uh, like the Russians proposed, but I don't think Moscow thinks that either. I think everybody understands that this would be a lengthy negotiating process. But you could start with a few easy steps, like the moratorium, for instance, and some of the unilateral promises, and then build on that. Uh, and I think that would be very valuable. Anolia, could I just push you and sort of play devil's advocate on NATO itself? I mean, if you look back over the last 30 years, especially the, the, the kind of more aggressive expansion of NATO under what, in the 2000s, under George W. Bush, the Bucharest Summit Declaration, the sort of track or offers of a uh, path for Ukrainian and, and, and Georgian membership. Surely looking back, it should have been clear how much 
Moscow, not just President Putin, but many Russian leaders, many Russians view that as a, you know, as a threat and a, and a, and a breach of, of what they felt were reassurances about NATO after the end of the Cold War. I mean, it, it, and if that's the case, then, I mean, why not have some sort of clarification, whether it's from Ukraine itself or whether it's from NATO, about NATO not expanding any further? So the Russians certainly made clear their unhappiness with NATO enlargement all the way along, but they weren't in a position to do much about it. And I think Western states saw that as consent, right? Um, no did not mean no. Uh, but at Bucharest, I mean, there, there were some Western states that were pushing much harder for Ukrainian and Georgian membership than others, right? I mean, the Western Europeans were, were much more circumspect about that at the time. Well, and I think the issue with Bucharest in 2008 was you had a fight within NATO. You had countries that really wanted membership action membership action plans for Georgia and Ukraine and countries that really, really did not want that. So they tried to square that circle by saying eventually they will be members, which was actually the worst of all possible worlds because it sent these countries a signal that if you just do enough, maybe, 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 maybe. So it's like dangling the carrot in front of them, but it's always further away. And for Russia, a signal that, yeah, that might eventually happen when in fact there's no intention of actually bringing them into the alliance. So kind of this effort at having the best of both worlds gave you the worst of them instead. So yes, absolutely, mistakes were made. The thing is... Once mistakes were made, you don't necessarily fix them by just reversing them. And the problem here is that NATO does not want to go back on a general principle that NATO decides when it enlarges, right? That it enlarges when it feels like it, not when Russia lets it, when Russia is not a member of the alliance. So, you know, I think Chancellor Schultz tried to... I mean, when he was speaking um, with the German press after his conversation with Vladimir Putin, he was very clear about the fact that, look, we just, you know, we need to find a way to say the truth without undermining anybody's principles. And I think that is really what it comes down to. The truth being that Ukraine is unlikely to join NATO anytime soon, in, in other words. But part of the principle is about NATO expanding when it wants to. But the other part is that countries are free to choose their own allies to some degree, right? Right, to some degree, you know, but free to choose their own allies. Um, I'm free to choose my own friends, but they have to choose me back, right? Uh, you're free to choose, but that doesn't mean they have to take you. And kind of aspirational alignment, which is what Ukraine has had these last eight years, where it tries to get closer to NATO and the EU, but it's always a second-class citizen, Look, from Ukraine's perspective, it has clearly decided that that is better than giving the Russians what they want. They feel safer with this very inadequate lack of any guarantee, but some friendship with NATO than they would feel with whatever deals they could strike with Moscow. That's telling. But going forward, I think it is important to find a way which is safer than that, because they certainly don't feel secure now. So what about a way through on Minsk? What might that entail? So I think it's it's a challenge. Um, one of the ways that has been proposed to square the circle is through international peacekeepers, for instance, that are in place for any elections that are held. Uh, there is a status law that Ukraine keeps extending that it passed shortly after the, you know, the Minsk agreements were first signed. It is conditioned on other parts of Minsk being fulfilled and uh, all the foreign weapons leaving. Uh, and I think this is something to 
to have a conversation with. It might be possible, for instance, to link the withdrawal of Russian forces and equipment from eastern Ukraine with these promises not to deploy any NATO weaponry in Ukraine. You know, that might be a way to connect the two pieces of this uh, this puzzle. You know, I think there are ways forward. Uh, the challenge is to figure out just what both Moscow and Kiev can live with. And, you know, that's not easy. Um, Ukraine is very concerned about taking steps that will genuinely limit its sovereignty. Now, one thing that Western states ought to consider, be considering is that if Ukraine is to regain control of the separatist-held territories and Moscow expects the people who currently run them to run them forever, well, if Western states help Ukraine really win hearts and minds there, right, if there is a real push to rebuild these economies that have been just dreadfully damaged by the last eight years of war, if there is a real push to make it clear that life under Ukrainian rule is much better than life was for these eight years when they were held by the separatists, you know, the next time people go out to vote they may not vote for the people who've been controlling these territories for the last eight years. So, you know, I, I think kind of thinking creatively about how to manage that is worthwhile. And if you look at the crisis as it stands now, I mean, obviously, we don't know what's going to happen in the coming weeks. But if you look at the crisis as it stands now, how do you think Russia and the West have sort of come out of this? On the one hand, you know, President Putin is the center of attention again. There's recognitions of Russia's security interests in a way that perhaps there weren't some months ago. He may yet get some concessions, you know, even if not exactly what he wants. But on the other hand, he's really helped forge a very united response. I mean, the West looks more more united now than it did some months ago. Plus, of course, there's this very deep enmity that you talked about in Ukraine to Moscow and to what Moscow is doing. I would also add, Richard, that in a sense, it's also forced or created a willingness to enter serious conversations as well, um, which is what Putin, in a sense, wanted. You know, he's shaking things up and, and wanted um, he's, you know, the US to take you know, Russia as the other pillar of Europe, the European security architecture as well, if you look at it from the, the Kremlin point of view. So I honestly think if you can get the troops to pull back now, it's a win-win. Everybody can feel that they've accomplished something and it, they actually will have accomplished something which will be better for European security, which is not to say that I um, in any way endorse coercive diplomacy, you know, attained by moving uh, 150,000 troops to another country's borders. But if everybody does come to the negotiating table now, everybody does win. If you see an escalation, everybody's going to lose, including Russia, certainly most of all Ukraine, but also including the Western states. Uh, they can emerge from it with their unity intact, but uh, that's going to be cold comfort with a less secure Europe. If we move forward, they will be united, but they will also be in a conversation with Russia about how to make Europe safer. And if there's also a path forward towards peace in Ukraine, then that helps resolve a, a war in the middle of Europe that has been going on for eight years. There's an actual prospect for everybody walking away a winner, which is kind of rare in international relations. Uh, it would be nice to see them take it. Olia, thanks so much for coming on again. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Olia. 
Richard, I just wanted to pick up on that last point from Olia and just pose it back to you to sort of get your perspective as well. I mean, broadly speaking, she ended on the possibility that if we opt for diplomacy as opposed to, you know, more military measures, that there is a way out of this crisis. It's not a straightforward path to get serious talks going and to try and address the the, the various aspects, whether it's European security, it's also the issues around minks as well. I, I sort of Having listened to Ollie, I'd be interested to sort of get your your overall sort of sense of how you see things playing out. Yeah, I mean, obviously we're not out of the woods yet, as you know, and as as we talked about, there's these conflicting reports about whether Russia is pulling back and 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 really prepared to give diplomacy a chance, and now this exchange of shelling on the front lines in Donbass and, and, and very stark warnings again from Washington about prospects for an invasion. So, you know, I think still really big questions about whether Western leaders, Moscow, Kiev can alight on, you know, some sort of formula that can give Putin a, a, an off-ramp, um, you know, obviously not the sort of thing that Western leaders understandably like to talk about, in essence, at the barrel of a gun, but probably you know, as, as Olya said, and as Chancellor Schultz hinted at, that if there's any way of averting an escalation through some sort of fudge that can give Putin, uh, you know, some way of pulling back, that's that's probably worth doing. Um, but as Olya, I think, is exactly right to point out, you know, in response to the question you asked her, you know, first, even if the Russians do go in, this has, I think, been quite an impressive display of unity from Western leaders, despite, to some degree, their different interests, despite that some are going to be harder hit by sanctions than others, for, for example. And I found some of the commentary that sort of plays up the division a little bit off target. In fact, if Putin hoped to stoke division among Western leaders, he's done the opposite. And the way that they've responded, the united front, sort of making clear what will happen if Russia escalates, even if it doesn't end up working, I think it's largely been the right response. I think the US has also consulted widely among Europeans, I mean, very important after the Afghanistan pullout, after the AUKUS deal, this military deal with Australia and the UK that rubbed France and much of the rest of Europe up the wrong way. So that's also been encouraging. I think it's also been interesting the way that the US has been sort of so open about its intelligence and that if Moscow does plan a false flag operation, it'll claim a Ukrainian attack in Donbass as a pretext to invade or a pretext to step up its own military activity, then kind of highlighting that risk explicitly pointing to the intelligence, you know, that has some logic too. So that's first. I mean, I think secondly, Olya is really completely right that even though maybe it's a narrow window and, you know, I don't think we'd say we're optimistic it'll happen, but I think it is right to identify that there could be an opportunity coming out of this for Western governments and Moscow to sit down and rethink a security architecture in Europe that's really been, you know, in need of an overhaul for a while. Now, ideally, that would go alongside efforts to try to find a way through the deadlock over Minsk. It's hard to see an agreement on wider European security without addressing the sort of open saw in Donbass. Um, but, I mean, Comfort, you're, you're actually in Munich now for the Munich Security Conference. Uh, I was very sorry I had to pull out. I had COVID last week, which is why we didn't put out an episode, but it's also meant I couldn't go to Munich, which was very disappointing. But you're there, along with many Western leaders, President Zelensky. You know, you'll see a lot of people... What are you sort of going to be talking about over the next few days? Thank you, Richard. Yes, it's um, an interesting time to be here. I've just arrived, um, as you say, into, into Munich, um, where key leaders, especially European leaders, um, will be here and everybody will be waiting um, in anticipation to hear what um, 
President Zelensky is going to say. And, you know, we are expecting um, that Ukraine will cast a shadow over the, the conference. Imagine a lot of interest in what he's going to say, but also what some of the European leaders um, who will be here and some US senators, what they'll be also saying. I mean, obviously, um, we hope now that, you know, all this recent bout of diplomacy, you know, clear messaging, that Moscow will find a way to pull back. But let's see what happens over the, the coming days. We hope to see, for example, that he sees sense and that he avoids a war that would really serve no one's interest. Clearly not Moscow's um, and certainly not the Russian population. Just thinking about the strain, also that it would pose on global humanitarian systems that is already creaking. Um, Really, this could be disastrous. The terrible human suffering that will accompany the war. But on top of that, Richard, the thing um, we'd stress is that even if Russia does pull back, the talks you mentioned and that Olya talked about on the European security architecture and minced, that those are really important. Um, the basic issues um, around, you know, the, the deployment of troops and equipment, updating existing agreements, rebooting those that have elapsed, think about the risk management in the Black and Baltic Seas. These are all the key components. Obviously, if Russia does pull back, Richard, and after the flare-up just now, that's a big deal. But if Russia does pull back, big temptation just to breathe a sigh of relief and wait for the next crisis. But in fact, stepping up diplomacy on the Donbass and on the European security architecture, more broader could still be crucial. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Comfort Aero. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work, including on the latest aspects of the Ukraine crisis and on the war in Donbass, on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thanks, of course, to our producers, Sam Megnick and Kevin Murphy, and to Gahans Bebe and Finn Johnson, who help out with production. And thank you, as ever, to all our listeners. If you have any questions, comments or feedback, please feel free to reach out on podcasts at crisisgroup.org. If you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review and we hope you'll all join us again next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.